regulation after regulation and tax. regulations that need to be changed. 185,000 pages. Without public accountability and transparency, there will be no public support. Is this really the best we can do? If there's a regulation that doesn't make any sense, why do you keep... You know who wrote the regulatory laws you must comply with? Welcome to the Regulatory Transparency Project's fourth branch podcast series. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. On April 4th, 2023, the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Project hosted a live luncheon and panel discussion titled AI and Anti-Discrimination, AI Entering the Arena of Labor and Employment Law. The following is the audio from the event. Now I'd like to introduce our panel. I will keep my introduction short to get right to our discussion. <clears throat> I would like to note before we begin that uh, we take intellectual diversity very seriously, and we did have a, a confirmed left of center speaker who uh, declined to participate um, more recently. Um, after our discussion, there will be the opportunity for audience Q&A at the microphones that you see at the uh, uh, either side of the room. Um, we welcome Philip Miscamera as our moderator today. Mr. Miscamera is a partner at Morgan & Lewis, where he leads the firm's NLRB special appeals practice and is co-leader of Morgan Lewis Workforce Change, which manages all employment, labor benefits, and related issues arising from mergers, acquisitions, startups, and related issues from um, workforce reductions and other types of uh, business restructuring. Mr. Miscamera served as the former chairman of the NLRB under President Trump. Prior to uh, becoming the chairman, he was appointed to the NLRB by President Barack Obama on April 9th, 2013, and was approved unanimously by the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions on May 22nd, 2013. Uh, he was confirmed by a voice vote in the U.S. Senate on July 30th, 2013, and served from August 7th, 2013 to December 16, 2017. We welcome Aram A. Gavor. Mr. Gavor is the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the George Washington University Law School and a nationally recognized scholar in the fields of administrative law, federal courts, and national security law. Mr. Gavor um, was an advocate in the civil division of the U.S. Department of Justice and in, in private practice. Associate Dean Gavor has litigated federal uh, court appellate and trial cases involving high-profile challenges to statutes, regulations, and policies. He received the Attorney General's Award for Distinguished Service in 2019. We welcome Mr. Uh, David Fortney. Mr. Fortney is a co-founder of Fortney & Scott LLC, a Washington, D.C.-based firm counseling and advising clients on the full spectrum of workplace-related matters, including employment discrimination and labor matters, compliance programs, government contracting, international dispute resolution, and developing strategies for avoiding or responding to workplace-related crises. Mr. Forney previously served as the Chief Legal Officer of the U.S. Department of Labor in Washington, D.C. during the term of President George H.W. Bush. Uh, please join me in welcoming our panel. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to our panel discussion on the impact of artificial intelligence on employment and human resources issues. Today, we'll be discussing everything from the ethical considerations of using AI in hiring and performance evaluations to the challenges of upskilling and reskilling a workforce in the era of automation. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the discussion, and remember, if a robot asks you to hand over your job, just say no. Here's the question. Did I write that introduction, or was that introduction written by ChatGPT? I'll tell you, it was a 32-word request to ChatGPT, only edited for the sake of brevity, which I'm not normally known for. Um, here was the request. Write an introduction I can use as a moderator of a panel discussion on the impact of artificial intelligence on employment and human resources issues and include some humor in the introduction. And so, as to the joke, which, by the way, some of you laughed at, um, if a robot asks you to hand over your job, just say no, I would give that a B plus. However, it's humbling to think that an algorithm in about 10 seconds, based on a 32-word request, 
could have written the same type of introduction that I would have written in my case, which involved four and a half years of serving as chairman or board member on the National Labor Relations Board, 40 years as a labor and employment lawyer, participation in a symposium at MIT on artificial intelligence, and eight years of college and graduate school. Um, I keep wondering, what could I have spent all of that time doing <laughs> if I would have only known that ChatGPT could have performed the way it did with respect to my 32-word request? So, in fact, we do have a great panel, and I'm just going to move on to the panel, and then we'll ask some questions. And we're going to start with uh, Aram Gavor. Aram, thank you. Part of me standing, the, the professor and appellate advocate in me uh, thinks better on my feet. Uh, thanks so much, Philip. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you to the society for putting together this really thought provocative uh, discussion today. <clears throat> My perspective will be that as an administrative law federal courts generalist, uh, and I specialize in artificial intelligence issues as well, uh, tech and the law. So to be very clear, I am not an employment law expert. But I think there's a lot of really critical and important information to be gained uh, to consider the milieu, the background upon which these discussions about AI and HR are happening. At the federal government level, we don't have a statutory body uh, that, that, is, that has been enacted by Congress uh, that governs the subject matter. Some would argue that we're very far behind Europe, we don't have a GDPR, and we have a number of other uh, constraints that make it pretty clear that Congress is sitting in torpor. So then we're looking at the other branches of government, uh, predominantly the executive branch. So the executive branch has been active and certainly has been pretty thoughtful uh, and consistent, I would say, with regard to uh, an incremental and more specific body of AI recommendations and utilization uh, of, of a whole of government approach with regard to AI. Of course, controlling for political party of the Oval Office occupant. So it began in uh, the Obama administration 2016 with two concurrent documents issued preparing for the future of artificial intelligence and also the National Artificial Intelligence Research and Development Strategic Plan. Very, very general, just issue spotting that these are important issues. Then in the Trump administration with a slew of executive orders, uh, and, I, and I am keeping it concise, Executive Order 13859 uh, in 2019, Executive Order on Maintaining American Leadership and artificial intelligence, and also Executive Order 13960 in December of 2020, <clears throat> promoting the use of artificial intelligence in the federal government. Uh, and, and it was the Trump administration that decided to charge NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, with laying out a body of guidance on how AI should responsibly be used. In the Biden administration, uh, there are two key documents that I think are worthwhile. Uh, the first is the blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. Note a blueprint for a Bill of Rights, not the actual Bill of Rights. So you're seeing the, the, the development of technology and use cases and societal change in this subject matter far outpacing the government's ability to catch up. And then I think critically, executive order from February of just this year, 14091, which is a build off of executive order 13985, uh, styled further um, uh, uh, missing the word here, but relating to racial equity and support for underserved communities through use of the federal government, which has three key AI provisions. One in its prefatory language of section one, uh, and two other provisions as well. So looking, let's say, at the October 22 blueprint for uh, AI Bill of Rights, there's a section with regard to AI discrimination, but it's really short. It's like six pages long. Uh, and then it references uh, the need to develop AI standards and, and, and shunts off to an organization uh, called the Data and Trust Alliance, which has its also very short algorithmic bias safeguards for workforce. Uh, and ultimately, we are left with a lot of questions and few answers. 
Now, building off of Commissioner Sonderling's statements, uh, let's look at our EEO laws. Keep in mind that they are premised in voluntary compliance. That's a very big, important point. Because as we're looking at administrative laws operation here, you have an absence of congressional legislation, bicameralism and presentment is really not taking us anywhere so far and probably won't be taking us anywhere in the coming months, at least for the foreseeable future. So then you have the administrative state led by the president, but there are constraints there too, predominantly the Administrative Procedure Act of 1946. So as we know, uh, from last summer in the Supreme Court's issuance of West Virginia versus EPA, the application of what many scholars and uh, commentators describe as a weak version of the major questions doctrine that just concludes, hey, if the statute doesn't authorize this significant major interpretive change from it around the time of the enactment and a long time has passed since then, uh, the agency doesn't have the authority to interpret the statute in a different way. So that's a guardrail that is really important, I think, that could limit the ability of the executive branch in, and its agencies of interpreting long existing statutes in a way that expressly regulates AI. However, the government has plenty of flexibility to apply existing statutes where AI has been used for existing circumstances that were the predicate consideration of Congress. Now, there's two different ways in which agencies can regulate, as I'm sure you know. Rulemaking, it's governed by 553 B and C uh, of the APA that requires notice and comment. The benefit is public participation, but also one of the costs is it takes a lot of time to do so. You're looking at a quarter of a year, up to a half a year, and then there's, of course, going to be a lot of follow-up litigation because there's very difficult to do anything in American society today without someone being upset about it and then suing about it. And then you have the other tool that we're seeing government leaning on quite heavily, which is the power of enforcement in the context of EEOC uh, reacting to charges uh, that come before it. With the power of enforcement, uh, agencies are able to, on a case-by-case -case basis, determine the lawfulness of conduct that has already occurred and potentially determine its retroactive legitimacy. So this presents a certain advantage to agencies because they're able to move more efficiently, more nimbly, but it also creates some big deficits as well. You don't have public participation with regard to agency enforcement practice. It takes conduct that is lawful or not, not expressly unlawful at the time of commission, rendering it retroactively unlawful. And because the parties that are uh, the subject or the target of enforcement behavior uh, are, tend to be less likely to defend their rights fully through the agency and all the way up through the courts, the judiciary are reacting somewhat less to the important questions of the day. And consequently, when uh, regulated parties settle or acquiesce to agency interpretations uh, or enforcement actions following charges, then a body of common law is developed, but at the agency level, that agencies some, sometimes style as precedent. So it's sort of a different level of a dystopian future in one respect. In another respect, trying to take the arguments of what one would, uh, like a left-leaning uh, scholar would describe, try to keep it middle of the road, uh, the, the left would argue, hey, Society is being affected right now. The Congress is not acting efficiently or necessarily uh, in the way that it should. And the executive branch has enough discretion to cover the gaps with existing statutes. And therefore, it's important for the government to step in for the betterment and the welfare of the people. Certainly disadvantaged minority classes of persons that are governed uh, um, under the Civil Rights Act. So with that, I'll take a pause. Uh, allow the other discussants to speak, and I'm sure there'll be a lively discussion that follows. Thank you very much. Uh, the next speaker will be David Fortney. Thanks, Phil. And um, I'll just remain seating if that's okay. I'm not sure what the protocol is, but we'll go that way. All right. So I want to try to bring in perspective uh, some of the views of what we hear from our clients. We represent employers. We represent employers across the spectrum. 
small, medium, a lot, a lot of large, multi-state, multinational employers. It is clear that we are in the midst of this radical change. You know, we, we all changed when we started using cell phones or word processors. The difference is that the pace at which this is occurring is unprecedented and, and how it's occurring. So we find all of these lagging factors. And I think Aram's done a very nice job of laying out sort of the regulators, the statutes. So, you know, what is the framework we're working under? On the other hand, obviously the new technology is wonderfully appealing. I mean, Phil's story lays out. Every employer is thinking, wow, in today's uncertain economic times, my resources are strapped. I don't need Phil Mescamera. I can have ChatGPT. It's great. And I don't need a room full of Phil's, you know, et cetera. And, and so there's a lot of motivation. I mean, recent press, as some of the industries that had scaled up on DEI and put together uh, cadres of, of humans to, to uh, monitor that, have, those were some of the first people that they let go in the current environment within the last six months. Not that they're not paying attention, but they are relying more on these machine monitoring, assessments, and recalibration. <clears throat> and I would like to thank all of you for actually showing up in person. This is a very quaint gathering that in six months may not be uh, even held anymore. So, but with that, where do we go? Because the law is lagging um, and the challenges are great and the marketplace, the appetite for this is almost insatiable. Uh, I've heard some of the government regulators, not Commissioner Sonderling, but others say, well, maybe people shouldn't use it, shouldn't, shouldn't use AI. That's unrealistic. I mean, if you use LinkedIn, you're using AI. If you're using, I mean, AI permeates most of us, you get an email and you get those three or four automatic responses now. You know, Vicki Lipnick sends me an email and I say, oh, that's great. Well, that's, that's just by me clicking one key that has an automated response. Uh, so those are all soft forms, but examples of AI, how it has already, we, we have it. One of the things, uh, that we have done in this very uncertain time, when you look at the at the, the legal landscape, uh, as has been pointed out, is complicated. So we have, but we do have some federal laws that still govern us. Yes, they're from a very different period. We have this uh, uh, set of uh, guidances called the Uniform Guidelines, promulgated under Title VII. They are regulations for EEOC. They are, uh, excuse me, guidance uh, for the EEOC, uh, binding regulations for federal contractors and enforced by the Labor Department uh, and well recognized by the courts. Under the uniform guidelines, you can take employment selection tools. So this was obviously written 45 years ago before anyone knew what AI stood for, uh, but you can still take employment selection tools and go through a process, complicated, that's called validated, meaning that it basically it serves a legitimate business interest, it, it advances that interest, and it does not unnecessarily discriminate. It's, it's an efficient way of achieving the business interest. So think about hiring people, promoting people, how you pay people, all of that. So the question is, can we take these existing tools and those tools are very important to employers because it provides a legal safe harbor, meaning that even if a judge or a jury would find what you did was unlawful, if you can say, look, I had this validated and I followed a validated process, uh, that, that that immunizes you from legal liability. So it's a very powerful concept. Um, now, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of concerns about, well, can you really apply those to AI? Um, that was a question that, that a group of us had spent a lot of time on as employers were looking at that. And so uh, under the Institute for Workplace Equality, we did ask Vicki Lipnick, and the reason I highlighted her a moment ago, uh, and Vicki, formerly um, uh, commissioner at EEOC and acting chair of EEOC, to head up a task force. We got about 40 people, multidiscipline, plaintiffs lawyers, employer lawyers, IO psychologists, statisticians, data people, AI developers, AI vendors. I mean, we tried to put everyone together in a room. This took 18 months, okay? So this was not a simple process, but to slog through and ask the ultimate question, not as the law might have been, but as the, the legal tools we have today, can we 
do things that are positive to, to apply and be confident in the tools we're using? And the answer is, not perfect yes, but largely yes, that, that most AI tools uh, can be validated, which is a very positive thing. And I want to just sort of put that out there. So it doesn't need to be as, it doesn't mean that these other legal developments shouldn't be pursued. They need to be. But those are the tools that are in the tool chest today. Complicating the employer landscape is this rapidly developing, it was mentioned before that we don't have federal preemption. So under basic federalist concepts, that means all the states it's, it, there are free at it. And boy, they are free at it. Uh, whether it's New York City uh, with its um, um, animated employment decision tool requirement that you have to both assess what the tool is and publish the results. This is kind of like the UK uh, pay studies that are on place. You have to publish those to a variety of states requiring notices to be put out. Illinois, if you're using video, as, as uh, Commissioner Sonderly mentioned, you have to ad advise the candidate of that, allow them to consent to that. Uh, we have many states that are looking to come online and bring more of these tools uh, on, which may or may not be good, but I will tell you from our client's perspective, when you run a multi-state or multi-national effort, the concept, it is going backwards by decades to say, well, I'm only going to do the New York method or the Illinois method or the this. And we all face a little bit of that with California's, I'll call it, we thought a little perhaps over the edge wage hour requirements and who was a contractor or employee, but that at least you could more easily define which segment of your workforce would be subject to the California requirement. AI tools don't work like that. Uh, they, they effectively impact everyone in your organization. You don't have a separate HRI, a human resource information system, just for your Illinois workers or, or your New York City employees. So this, I think, is actually a, a challenge uh, that, that we have in conceptually, even though typically we'd say, look, not having a heavy-handed federal regulatory state is a good idea. Uh, we have some clients that are beginning to think, maybe we need at least consistency, consistency. My answer in part is careful what you ask for because you may get a heavy regulated state, but that's, that's at least one of the issues that's actively being pushed about. And, and final thing that, and I've got lots more, but I'll, I'll save it, Phil, for when we have a discussion. It isn't just the employers that are concerned about the speed and using these tools and, and the efficiencies that can come. Um, about what week ago, there was the open letter by many of the tech designers. So I think we're up to about 3,000 individuals who've signed this open letter, including Elon Musk, including uh, Steve Wozniak, an Apple co-founder. So these aren't just sort of fringe people. These are people in the heart whose business it is to design and push forward. Basically what they're saying is, you know what, if we go beyond chat GBT4, which Phil described a moment ago, if we keep going beyond that, and we are, I mean, it's, it's, it's rolling at a very quick rate. We, the designers of these products, are very concerned about what's going to occur. We think there should be a six-month hiatus in the deployment of additional tools. It's an interesting concept. Further, they are actually seeking uh, that there be uh, federal um, uh, statutes enacted to regulate this, to put guardrails on, regulatory requirements imposed, because they've said that effectively, if we just leave this sector to its own designs, I mean, we're just gonna veer off and do things that people perhaps don't want. Um, I just quote to you quickly from their open letter because I think that um, it's powerful. AI systems are now becoming human competitive at general tasks. This is my point. That's why I'm replacing Phil, because I, I've got someone that can do that. So we'll just have a little screen up here as our moderator. I'd, I'd like the videotape to be destroyed <laughs> as soon as this panel ends. <laughs> uh, but they go on and say, should we let machines flood our information channels with propaganda and untruth? That's one of the other problems is there's no quality control mechanism. Should we automate away all jobs, including the fulfilling ones? Should we develop a non-human non minds that might eventually outnumber, outsmart, obsolete, and replace us? Should we risk loss of control over our civilizations? 
This, and th these are their questions, the developers of these services. So that's powerful, and it goes on. This is an open letter, and I would encourage you to look at it. But it raises powerful, thought-provoking questions that I think all of us, as, as members of society, in grappling with what do we do, uh, the automation is continuing apace, and that's kind of their point. The marketplace for using and developing efficiencies is absolutely there and typically for the, the best of reasons. But the unintended consequences, which is what I think they're highlighting, are real too. So with that, I do look forward to our discussion and um, thank you very much. And Phil, I knew it was ChatGPT when you said upskilling and reskilling because that's way too fluffy of a term for an NLRB lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny. I'll have right back at you, uh, Commissioner Sunderling, uh, with the first question. You know, in, in the world of the NLRB, some of the leading cases that still deal with technological change involve, in one case, uh, prefabricated doors. That was a Supreme Court case that was decided uh, more than 50 years ago. Another leading case deals with the use of containers in the shipping industry, and that was a case that was decided 40 years ago. And so given the lag associated with, you know, even relatively simple types of technological change, um, how capable do you think the EEOC is and other administrative agencies to really even attempt to keep up with the type of technological advancements we're seeing now? I, I don't think we can, and I don't think you'd ever expect the government to be able to keep up technologically with the private sector. I don't think that's the balance of how it should work. I think what we should be doing is saying what we know best and forget whether it's fancy technology, forget whether it's a, uh, an HR manager who's racist or biased, whoever you want to call that person, Who's, who's making those discriminatory decisions, what we know is results. And what our investigators are going to be looking at when they go out into federal investigations or lawyers trying to prove is bias in the results. And how we got there is a different story. And how now we prove that um, through, whether it's made through artificial intelligence or whether it's made through a human. I mean, what are we faced with now when we have to prove bias, when we have to prove discrimination? We have to resort to um, subpoenaing witnesses and deposing people and trying, you know, and there's so many people like to focus on the black box of algorithm. If we only had the inside of the algorithms, we'd be able to show that big tech wants to discriminate. We want to, we'll be able to show bias, whatever context you're talking in. But, you know, what are we left with now? How do we get inside somebody's brain? All we have is depositions now, and generally everyone's very honest during a deposition. So, of course, we find out if they made a discriminatory hiring decision. They usually admit that right after they give their name. Yeah. Exactly. Of course I fire that person because of their age or race or religion. So in a sense, looking at the, you know, I'm flipping this in the sense where, you know, it's the same true with the, the cases related to uh, the EEOC. You know, this whole disparate impact um, theory came out of the 1960s from a Supreme Court case on um, tests being put uh, that required a high school um, degree and, and looked for those characteristics. So, you know, it's no different than that with this technology. But going back, when our investigators show up, we're going to look at, at results. We, we're not going to understand. You could show me the algorithm. You know, give us the, the proprietary AI. What am I going to be able to do with it? You know, it could be changing a hundred times. Our federal investigators are never going to have that understanding. But, but looking at how you got there, in a sense, AI can make that more transparent. So my example now with, you know, how we're left with proving employment decision of trying to squeeze it out of somebody, you know, in a way, if there is a um, a track record through transparency, explainability, all these buzzwords of how that decision, that computer decision made that employment decision, whether it's here's the skills we looked at, here's where we recruited, here's the data set, you know, here are the applicant pools, here's who had access to the algorithm. Um, it, that's a lot more transparent than what we're left with now. So in a way, I'm trying to flip the script and say, using AI can actually help the EEOC in its mission. It can help us prove discrimination, whether intentional or not, or in a sense from an employer's perspective too, if you've invested in these systems and you have proper policies, procedures, handbooks in place, if you're training those who have access to the algorithm, you should feel confident in establishing a good faith defense or showing what um, characteristics actually went into with a track record now that's documented digitally, which we didn't have before. So you know, it's just really in a sense, ignoring all the distractions for us um, about the technology, about whether it applies, it's saying, here's the result, 
let's start there because that's what we've been doing since the 1960s. Yeah, and I'd be interested, all panelists, um, David made reference to a, as one concept, a moratorium in the development of new AI tools for, you know, six month period. Is it feasible from the perspective of regulating artificial intelligence and related tools, is it feasible as one element in the approach to be either to stop it for a period of time or to slow it down? And let's start, uh, Keith, with your thoughts and then uh, David and Ira. Yeah, so for my part, if, if um, companies want to develop programs that you know are deemed aggressive, or deemed to take down humanity, it's still a free country. And if employers want to use those, for the wrong purposes, then there's going to be liability for them. So um, unless Congress makes it illegal um, for companies to develop sort of products related to this generative AI, you know, from our perspective, we just have to deal with the consequences of it. And so I don't think we should be in the business of telling on the private sector of uh, stifling innovation and telling them whether they should create new products or shouldn't. We just have to make sure that whoever is developing them and ultimately using them who face that liability understand the consequences of the very laws that it impacts, which is very difficult in that sense because it literally impacts every single law in the book. And I think that's more of the challenge in saying, um, no, you can't do it. And David. I think a pause is unrealistic. I, I agree with that, and I hate to sound cynical, but I'm wondering if the signatories to this letter, if it's just not to assuage their conscience uh, on what they've developed, uh, maybe, but maybe that's being too, um, too hard-nosed. But I do think, I mean, if the purpose is to allow the law to catch up, look, we're in Washington, we know. Six months is the blink of an eye. Nothing's gonna happen in six months, period. The law's been trying to catch up on this, as Commissioner has explained, for years. Uh, so six months is, is not the case. Whether there should be a broad-based consensus on whether the laws need to be changed and how to go about it, that strikes me as a more constructive discussion and dialogue to bring in all the stakeholders. Uh, there's not gonna be a consensus. Uh, there's not even a consensus to Commissioner Sonderling's point that the current law is insufficient. Uh, and I tend to personally be aligned more in that direction. And the current law may not cover every single instance, but it's, it's pretty good. Uh, but whether there's room for improvement, that's always a discussion that I think we should welcome. I don't think it's realistic to think that you're going to pose uh, a hiatus. Uh, I don't think it would be honored. Uh, and I just, I just think in the current economic times, with all the demands employers are facing, that will not occur. So we should do something a little more realistic, I think, instead of a hiatus. And, and Aram, is it feasible as one element of a regulatory approach, either to stop AI development or to slow it down? I don't think it is. It's very difficult to do. So first, you'd have to have Congress moving with such alacrity. Uh, let's assume that's the case, right? Because Congress moved quickly when there was COVID, right? It, it did so quite intentionally and significantly, right? You had a federal eviction moratorium that, that Congress enacted uh, in a severe enough emergency and within our memory, right? So Congress can move very quickly if it wants to. But then the other problems is this creates a slew of other constitutional issues, like contracts clause. Like what, what if what if you already have these these processes in development, which we do, and then these companies just go belly up if they just can't do anything with it, right? Then then at what point is it like a takings potentially? Uh, and, and there's a whole slew of, of very complex but important issues that one would look need to look at. I think it's economically impossible. My assumption is that all of these, like a chat GPT, like eight has already been created. It's probably already been deployed uh, in, in several sectors. My, my assumption is that the military probably already has uh, very advanced versions of this stuff uh, already in deployment. Uh, and then also, what's the solution, right? Is it a government takeover or do we establish ministries of truth? Uh, and, uh, and, 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 Alongside that, does Congress have the ability to regulate the rest of the world? It doesn't, right? So U.S. competitors are still developing this technology and would not subject themselves to this moratorium. Uh, so this would just stifle American innovation. 
Now, am I fearful? Yeah, uh, I am. I've played around on ChatGPT4. Uh, I've, I've uh, utilized Dan mode, which like jailbreaks it, uh, and it allows it to answer some questions that otherwise uh, wouldn't it wouldn't answer before. Um, at least I did that with ChatGPT3. You can just look up Dan mode, D-A-N space mode, and just cut, paste. Uh, and then it answers some more questions that otherwise wouldn't be constrained to answer. But I think the solution really needs to be a collaborative one with industry, government, and also Congress to lay out some guardrails at a sufficient level of generality to guide the technology uh, for the best benefit of our society. And, and here's another question. Um, the uh, European community had been, I think it's fair to say, in the lead when it came to data privacy uh, over the U.S. W what's happening now in the European community and other countries in comparison to where we are in the U.S. when it comes to regulating uh, uh, AI? Uh, any, any panelists? Well, they're trying to get ahead of this like they did with GDPR. And they're taking a much different approach, which is much more complex, where they're saying, you know, we're going to take a risk-based approach to regulating artificial intelligence, and we're going to categorize product use. So we're going to tell you if it is a certain use, depending on the industry and type of product, what requirements you're going to have. And from a, a low risk to a unacceptable or high risk, and they've said the use of employment is in the highest risk category possible, which subjects it to robust disclosures, auditing, and other um, requirements as well. Um, what's different um, over what the EU is proposing, which is different than here in the United States, is they're also trying to put vendor liability in there. And they're saying you're a vendor, whether you design, deploy, and put it on the market, or if you are creating it internally for yourself and deploying it, then you have that vendor um, liability as well, which is significantly um, different than here that actually um, gives some teeth to the vendors who are out there designing and developing these programs. So they're saying that, you know, we're going to tell you the use of this product if it's high risk or low risk, we're making that decision from the government. But, and we're going to create a new enforcement agency to then go ahead and enforce it at the different member state um, levels. So that's that's what's going on in Europe, which is a much more, you know, I want to say aggressive approach of having a governing body there. But then the government saying, well, here's how we determine how you're the risk of you using this product. And, and let me ask uh, Aram, um, who wrote an interesting article that dealt with mitigating uh, artificial intelligence bias in administrative agencies. And all of us have some familiarity with administrative agencies. Could you just talk a little bit about your observations regarding bias in administrative agencies when it comes to this area and, and what, what uh, efforts would be constructive in terms of trying to mitigate that, that bias? Thanks, Phil. So my concern is that government agencies developing, using, and procuring their own AIs for the purposes of their work. This is already happening with the U.S. Department of Justice utilizing algorithmic tools for purposes of enforcement. EPA is doing it as well, as I understand. And this can carry with it a number of interesting features. One is on the investigations and the enforcement side, you're talking about a domain of executive branch behavior that is actually unregulated by the Administrative Procedure Act. The APA has very, very little constraints, very few constraints on administrative enforcement uh, and investigative tools that leads up to an enforcement action. Once an action takes place, then you're sort of mainstreamed uh, into the APA's guardrails. But before that, that's an issue. Also with regard to grant administration, if it's just a big black box, the black box concern, well, under the APA, you have to have, uh, if it is reviewable as a final agency action under section 706 and 704 of the statute, it's reviewable for arbitrariness and capriciousness or nonconformity with the law. And an administrative record needs to be generated so that the court can have a snapshot view of what the agency had before it at the time of its decision making. If that information is not traceable, if it's not somewhat transparent, 
then that presents a significant problem for traditional APA oversight of agency behavior. When it comes to grants, for example, if you have an AI tool helping with that and it is not properly trained, it might essentially become its own policy-making entity just having outcomes for a particular subset based on how it's trained and not based on the correct statutory or regulatory factors that have been promulgated through notice and comment rulemaking or a guidance document. So I think the domain of AI in government is a really important one. And this is one area, it's maybe I'm being uh, facetious here, where I'm almost happy that government's a little bit behind <laughs> because it allows the best technology use cases to be developed in the private sector, and then the sound wants to be developed, to be adopted within the government. You know, and that's interesting because the, I would say 95% of what most of us see when it comes to artificial intelligence and regulatory issues involves the concern that the use of artificial intelligence uh, represents or constitutes some sort of violation uh, in the private sector and the government's trying to keep up from a prosecutorial perspective. When it comes to the potential use of artificial intelligence to identify or to prosecute violations, um, I'll, I'll ask this of uh, both Keith and David. What would that mean in terms of burdens of proof when it comes to proving a violation? And what would that mean in terms of due process, in terms of understanding what the basis was for a particular prosecution or allegation of a violation? Uh, it's, uh, Commissioner Sunderling, why don't you start, and then David, your comments. Yeah, I mean, I think it raises really interesting questions when you're putting, you know, additional burdens or, or trying to change longstanding burdens of proof, which I believe only Congress can do, um, related to uh, the enforcement of these laws in the civil rights context. And, you know, is there now need to be a higher standard when a computer is making it versus when a human's making it? And do we need to re-evaluate that equation? I, I bluntly think, you know, not. And obviously it's my job right now to enforce um, the laws that have been on the books. But I don't think that, you know, when it comes to altering any of these standards that it is necessary um, at all. Because again, it's very simple to simplify it from the position I'm in now, um, we are just looking at the outcomes of there, and there's a well-established system of getting there, whether it's under various theories of discrimination or, you know, ways to test for disparate impact. Um, those exist, and I do not believe they should be altered. I, I do think we should be bringing more light to them and, and showing how it works with each different use case of AI. And I think that the, that's the burden on the EEOC and the federal government across the board, whether it's in housing, whether it's finance, any use of this technology or in the criminal justice system. Um, potentially, I know you can have a whole other panel on the use in the criminal justice system and sentencing and, and conviction and all that. Um, but from our perspective, it is just so important to go through every single use and show how the law applies. And to David's point earlier about localities trying to get involved in this as well. You know, I think that's also dangerous for employers as well, although they should be commended for trying to take on a very complex issue if they're not. Um, also ensuring that employers have to, in those jurisdictions, have to comply with all federal laws, um, then they're going to have a problem. Because in the New York case, you know, when you're asking to do a bias audit and you're putting new standards for employers in New York City to um, audit certain pre-deployment audit on certain characteristics, well, then if you're doing it, shouldn't you be doing it on the other characteristics that the EEOC is going to look at um, either way there? So that's kind of the, the challenge with other people getting into the space and also not having a new standard. So the other thing with New York is is that, okay, so you're going to require this testing, you're going to require audits, you're going to require that public disclosure. Well, what does that mean? Okay, so the EEOC has been doing it one way since 1978. Now you're putting this new requirement. So here's the million-dollar question. How are you going to do it in New York? And then it's been delayed, and then ultimately they come out with some um, guidance that says, well, look to the EEOC. Uh, and especially with their disclosure requirement, it's like, you know, what does that mean? We're going to require you to disclose, which employers haven't had to do before um, if they find by does that mean, oh, we found some discrepancies and we fixed it, or our program horribly discriminates against, you name it, uh, Hispanic women, whatever it is. So, you know, those, when you're starting to layer on different requirements, um, whether it's through your original questions on the burdens or what you have to do, 
Um, without that uniformity or without the going back to the basics of what the EEOC requires, you're just causing basically significant confusion um, and more harm than good. Yeah, and, and David, the same question, and I'll expand it to include, include private litigants. Uh, to the extent that you have violations that are alleged to be proven using artificial intelligence tools in a courtroom uh, or by an administrative agency like the EEOC, what does that do in terms of burdens of proof? What's that mean in terms of due process considerations? Sure, thank you. That's a, it's a thoughtful question. Now we're getting, as they say, down to the nub of it a little bit uh, because this is where it comes to play. So we have this multi-tiered, very complicated legal landscape. Uh, the states, I think, largely are tracking basically what the European model is, transparency, disclosures, audits, and, and consent by the participants. Which, by the way, there's nothing preventing employers from doing that by there's themselves. There's nothing preventing employers, and some, you know, and some of that, I think, is a best practice, but it's not required. So that, in terms of states, from an enforcement standpoint, Phil, that makes it easier for states, because that's, that's a very checklist type of item. Did you, did you publish uh, what the, that you're using this tool? Did you give people a chance to consent, or opt in or opt out, et cetera? And respectfully, I think most state agencies, they can kind of handle that. I mean, it may be hard for our clients to comply with that or understand or interface with the federal, but the states, they sort of shrug and say, not our problem, you know? Uh, and in our federalist system, that, that we, we live with that at the moment. When we, so we have to live with that component and that, as I've indicated, is changing very rapidly. Then we have the federal system. The, most of the laws we're dealing with are focused on employers. And most employers are not the ones building these tools. They are customers. They buy these tools from AI development, from vendors who develop these tools with all sorts of things. And as Keith mentioned, they have a black box component. I mean, you know, your typical company, they're like, you know, I need more efficiency in screening because I get 5,000 applicants a day. And I laid off three quarters of my HR department, so I just need someone to, some process to get through that efficiently and you know who I want. No, they don't all need to be uh, lacrosse players, but you know, I want people that can get this job done. Uh, that is largely what many companies are looking at today. So they go and there's a variety of tools out there that say we'll do a good job in scraping through applicants or going out and finding people and tapping them on the shoulder and saying, don't you want to apply uh, through, through various job boards? And so when the burden of proof comes, when a company, if, if they're faced with, let's pretend hypothetically, it's the EEOC, they say, well, we're very concerned because your hiring practices indicate X. How did you come to pick those people? And depending on the particular AI tool that's being used, it's like, well, we, we, we went forward with bona fide requirements for a job. And we said, these are the people we want, these are the vacancies, and help us rank. And yeah, we did interview people, and we, we told people it was a Zoom call, and they all wanted to come. No one wanted to fly into headquarters in Seattle to talk to us, so we interviewed them all on Zoom, and here's who we picked based on that. Very simple. That could be problematic if the problem came through the, quote, black box, and the burden is on the employer because you use the vendor's product. There's one other development, though, that I think both plaintiffs and maybe EEOC is starting to pivot a little bit. The employment discrimination laws primarily focus on employers. They also focus on employment agencies, employment agencies. And I, I like how Keith approaches this, which is, let's go back where we didn't have machines doing this, but you go to an agency and said, you know, I need a laborer. I need someone strong and, you know, maybe from this neighborhood would be great. So you have, and, and the agency only gives you resumes of- And same with the unions. You know, well. unions, et cetera, that, that fill those, discriminatory requirements. All right. And clearly the law in 1964 was designed to say, we don't want that to continue. We recognize that practice. Terrific. That's on the books. Now, today, some of the tools, at least as alleged, uh, EEOC settled a case within the last week uh, against D DHI, uh, DHI, in which the uh, allegation was that the uh, AI tool was being used to discriminate. It was a job board. 
and anyone could post on the job board that, that wanted to, but they alleged that the DHI, the job board tool, would, uh, would allow discriminatory postings to go forward. So the settlement was that they had to affirmatively use AI to ensure that none of the postings were discriminatory. Kind of a page out of the Facebook settlement involving discriminatory housing. We're gonna make sure that the ads aren't discriminatory. Another case, Workday is a very popular human resource information system that many employers use uh, to do a whole variety of tasks. Workday has been sued in private litigation. The EOC took a pass on this one. They, they decided not to go to charge, um, in which the plaintiff says, you know, literally, I applied to 80 or 100 companies that I think used Workday, and I didn't get a job. And I'm a member of, he's over 40, African-American, has disability, I mean, he has a whole litany of things. And therefore, I think Workday is what caused this to occur. And I'm suing, I'm not suing the 80 to 100 employers, I'm now going to directly sue Workday. Stay tuned, it was just filed, we don't know the outcome yet of that, but it, it shows to the burden of proof and innovative ways. It's kind of like how water finds its way in. These claims are gonna come forward. The law may or may not be outdated, but so the attack point is not quite, is not, is getting to the vendors. The vendors are in the best position, typically. Employers are primarily on the hook. It can be hard to defend, uh, but, but the employment agency theory is one that's developing rapidly and is worth following. Um, just two questions before we open this up to the audience for questions and answers. Uh, and by the way, uh, I'm actually, you think that I'm speaking, I'm just moving my mouth. My <laughs> cell phone is set to the Google Bing search engine, which is actually generating the audio right now. What is your ATM pen? <laughs> um, black box question uh, number one is, uh, and I'll direct this to Aram and David, um, you know, everyone regards AI, the kind of essence of AI is that there's a black box that the algorithm that does a lot of stuff and it's not necessarily uses the same type of logic that any one of us uses. Um, how many products are out there in the marketplace right now that you think basically don't work? Meaning they don't perform the function that they are advertised to perform. Uh, and not necessarily the result of any intentional misrepresentation, but it's we're kind of in the Wild West right now in terms of uh, publishers of various tools uh, and AI products. What do you think in terms of just how many products are out there that are not putting aside legality, you know, may not actually be performing the task that they are purchased to perform or licensed to perform? It's a really good question, Phil. A technical one that I don't know if I can uh, really conclusively answer, but I will say that <clears throat> if you have proprietary software, you have a lack of understanding within society, there's no subject matter regulation uh, by government, and uh, it really comes down to just private contracting between parties, there's no real way of knowing. I think it comes down to uh, the successful market incumbents being able to prove that their products work. Uh, and, and I bet that, at least in the context of AI and HR, most, most uh, firms aren't just going to jump into uh, replacing their entire processes with an AI product, hopefully without engaging in some sort of due diligence. But there probably is like a subset of entity, you know, firms that don't do that, and that's a big problem. Yeah, David, what do you think? Um, I think there's a lot of, I'll call it unintended consequences. Um, many companies and, and these uh, researchers and software engineers and so forth, they say, look, what do you want? Do you, uh, I want pay equity. I want to be fair in hiring. Okay, so that means that uh, I'll make sure every time you hire someone, I'll check and see how I'll calibrate my hiring decision for you. The AI tool does this. Um, you're kind of underutilized in terms of women in these engineering roles. So I'll just, through the tool, tilt a little bit and I will effectively suppress some of the male quali qualified applicants and really hone in on females. And I'll just get those numbers right back up to where you want them. That is largely what we have found because people are like, wow, I started using these tools. I'm great. I've got pay equity. 
my hiring numbers are spot on. I had 42% female apply. I hired 42%. It's perfect. I'm absolutely perfect. And those are flags. And so the only way, in my experience, you can get that is that there, in fact, is either enhancement or suppression, which likely is unlawful, but it occurs, albeit for the best of reasons, but it occurs. And it's very hard to find out how. And in my experience, I would like to think that the clients are being more careful. Honestly, the corporate lawyers tend to be the last ones that are checked off. The, the compliance unit, the compensation unit, HR, they're like, hey, we got this new software we're bringing online, Q2. And the lawyer's like, what? What is this? Oh yeah, we signed a contract, we're good. In fact, it's gonna be great. You're gonna love this because you're always saying how bad our hiring numbers are. We fixed it. We went to that retreat with you. This is literally in the last two weeks, a conversation with a client. We went to the retreat. You were all over us. We had to get it fixed. We went out. We spent a quarter million dollars. We have the problem solved. And we're now trying to unpack and figure that out. And it may not be quite as good as advertised, but I don't think it was done badly, but it was, but. And know, now our so. corporate logo is on all the vendor sites. Exactly. So the plaintiff's exactly. lawyers and class action lawyers, the government can see who's using what. So yeah. that's, that. Uh, and I agree, we can't quantify, but those, those vignettes Yet, I hope bring to life some of the concerns. And then last question for Keith. Um, this is another black box question. You know, uh, questions about validation. And uh, we know that uh, selection tools that use artificial intelligence have an aspect of them that is enigmatic because we don't fully understand why it is that they produce um, outcomes that are more successful than human beings historically have been. But when it comes to validating uh, a process that has, in its essence, something that's very difficult to scrutinize with logic, when publishers or um, the distributors of these tools say they've been validated, uh, number one, is it possible when a technology didn't even exist two or three years ago for it to be validated in the conventional way that would pass muster with the EEOC? And in general, is validation, when you're talking about selection tools using artificial intelligence, is it the same type of validation that employers have used for the past 30 or 40 years? Or does it really have to have some different type of validation because it's a different type of selection process? Well, you know, kind of tagging off um, what you said here, there's so many products out there that, uh, and maybe this is outside of our wheelhouse, more for the FTC that say we're EEOC certified and we're OFCCP certified because we've done these testing in the aggregate. And we use generic BLS data to show that this engineering position applying through, you know, through a fake company for advertising purposes, that we are in compliance with the four-fifths rule, and they, they really quote the rule, um, that it's completely binding. And in the sense is, you know, that is also um, just not true, because when the EEOC is going to look at the validation related to one of these tools, they're only looking at how it applied in your workforce in that location on that job description. And that requires going through every single line of that job description to see if all those requirements are necessary, if they can be validated, and what that actually looks like. So when you have the sales process of this saying, well, there's these long-standing tests that the EEOC and the UFCCP is used, and we've paid these uh, either academic or private studies, these IOs or accounts to look at this, to taking a generic data set, and we're okay. Well, look, the law allows 0% discrimination. And although there are methods of proving disparate impact that do allow you know, some wiggle room as a uh, defense, um, at the end of the day, when you're actually showing up in court and you're showing up in the EEOC, you don't know what method of validation you're going to get because the EEOC doesn't always use the four-fifths rule and neither do plaintiff's lawyers and neither do judges. So it really becomes a battle of the experts of whose test shows better for results for what they're looking for. But at the end of the day, very similar to what we've been talking about, all those aggregate studies, all those you know testing uh, methods, which I, I think apply equally um, to the when employment assessments were on Scantron with a a pencil, um, at, at the end of the day, it only matters how it's applied in that one workforce, in that one job position, and that is totally lost in the advertising equation and the implementation equation. 
Um, yes, and I think we'll open this up to uh, other questions. By the way, I also want to acknowledge that former EEOC Commissioner Vicki Lipnick um, is also in the audience, and I'm, I intend to ask her all of these questions privately afterwards because I'm interested <laughs> in what, what Vicki has to say as well. Yes. Hi, excellent panel. Thank you. I've learned a lot here today. Um, my name is Adam Fear. I'm a senior research fellow with the R Street Institute here in Washington, and I'm also uh, the head of the uh, Regulatory Transparency Project Emerging Technology Workforce. Um, last November, we came out with a paper, a study on the coming onslaught of algorithmic fairness regulations, where we surveyed the kind of things that David was discussing in terms of state and local efforts that are multiplying uh, like gangbusters, not just on the employment front, but on every possible conceivable front. Some are narrow, some are broad-based. So we actually have a survey out there, and then my co-author, Neil Chilson, and I are going to come up with a follow-up study for FedSoc uh, highlighting these points. And I want to build on that point that David made and that uh, Phil just asked the panel about uh, to tease out a little more detail about where we might be heading and get your opinions on how, where we're going to see policy going over the next two to five years, which is that when you look at all the state and local activity on this front, again, not just on the employment side, but on all algorithmic fairness issues, all roads lead back to some kind of call for for algorithmic transparency, algorithmic explainability, let's get under the hood, behind the black box, whatever your preferred metaphor. And the, the preferred regulatory vehicle to do this is some sort of algorithmic impact assessment or AI audit. And there are important differences between those two tools, but what keeps them and what relates them is the idea that somebody, it could be a government body, it could be a private body, a certification agent, could be the courts, somehow certify or put a stamp of approval on the idea that you actually did reveal something about the algorithm to the public. Um, this could take a regulatory or legislative overlay and the, the privacy bill that's been pending now for a while in Congress has an entire provision about algorithmic impact assessments being mandated. The Algorithmic Accountability Act bill that's been proposed uh, would create a new Bureau of Technology at the FTC to oversee the process of algorithmic impact assessments. The state and local bills, New York, Illinois, others, they have some sort of process like this. So I guess the question is, and this is something that the commissioner teases out in his excellent recent law review article on this issue, is this question of like, is there an alternative framework that we can be all right with um, that would suggest that yes, there's something to the idea that assurances, audits, impact assessments can help validate or build trust in algorithmic systems, but that it's done in a more decentralized, flexible, ally, uh, 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 agile fashion through maybe a voluntary self-certification process or better yet, a professional body or association, and there are many out there that are doing this already, creating frameworks for impact assessments and audits that would then get some sort of light blessing from regulators, whether it be the EEOC or somebody else, and maybe even some sort of a safe harbor from further liability. And this is something I know, Commissioner, you, you yeah. have a brief section on this in your law review article. I thought maybe you and the panel could talk about, is this where we're heading? Because, of course, the EU has a much more heavy-handed right. prior conformity assessment process. California and other states want to go very aggressive. But I'm, what I'm asking to say is, like, tell us how we get halfway there and satisfy the concerns of those who call for algorithmic fairness regulations without full-blown, heavy-handed, top-down, precautionary principle kind of mandate. And your work on this topic, everyone should read. It's highly, I highly cite to it, and I think um, you're doing great work as well on the points you make. This is a really important concept that I like to discuss, is that there's nothing preventing employers or vendors from doing this now in advance of any of these threat and regulations, in advance of any threat and lawsuits or EEOC uh, investigations. You know, in the employment context, employers have been doing internal audits um, for decades on the wage and hour side, on the independent contractor employer side, and they fix it if they see issues in advance. And that's a big part of our mission at the EEOC is also not just to remedy employment discrimination, but to prevent it as well. And there's longstanding tools for employers to do that. Um, you know, depending on the content, even in the EEOC context, um, with the Me Too movement, you know, we couldn't bring every single case on sexual harassment, but because of the publicity, publicity that gotten, largely because of uh, former acting chair uh, Lipnick's um, raising awareness of this, you know, the EEOC put out guidance, best practices, and what it caused is HR departments to take this seriously. It caused the CEOs of board saying, it's okay, you know, we're going to invest in this, and we're going to be very public, and we're going to have open-door policies, we're going to have new policies, procedures, we're going to audit, we're going to do everything we can to eliminate this problem from happening 
or occurring more. So in the HR sense, in the labor and employment sense, this is happening constantly within um, corporations right now. And whether it's being done by internal counsel, outside counsel, a combination of accountings. And that's what I'm trying to argue here when it comes to AI. Because, you know, as you've heard at length of this panel, for the time being, a lot of the, you know, standards, burdens of proof, whatever you want to call them, are the same. You can start doing that before you ever let one of these tools make a decision on someone's livelihood. Okay, you can do that internally, um, whether it's in a combination with the vendor before you buy it, or you know, after you buy it with their assistance and pre-deployment. Um, and that just puts you in a much better position than a company who buys the advertisement, who says, oh wow, you hired some study and you show that this product doesn't discriminate and you know it's validated in your sense. Well, now I can just implement it like I do other software, which is how it's being sold, because you're saying, okay, companies spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars on this product, and like other products, it's supposed to just let it go and it's gonna be more efficient, economical. But here, when you're, when you're dealing with civil rights and a AI, you know, you have to, to make sure that you're doing those um, compliance things in advance, or you can really, um, in a sense, violate the law pretty quickly and easily is some of the examples you heard from now. And my point is, if you do that now and the EEOC comes or class action lawyers comes, who's going to be in a better position? Company A that says, well, we just bought this, look at the glossy brochure they gave us. They said it was validated. They said the EU, they use the EEOC's methods and it works great. And it promised me diversity, equity, inclusion. And I don't say that in a joking fashion because that's what these programs promise, as David said, why the business functions are buying them, not the legal review, um, are jumping to them because it's promising pay equity. It's promising all of these things which are top of mind for board of directors right now. So we just let it go and it horribly discriminated against. Versus company B says, you know, we took their advertising, but we know it only applies to our workforce. We did pre-deployment testing. We saw there were some issues. We, we try to correct it. We, you know, whether it's the skills, whether it's uh, where we um, advertise for the job, whether qualifications, whatever the metrics are you're looking at, you can deal with internally for that specific job because it's that specific. You know, we found some discrimination, we fixed it, or we're taking the risk that under the four-fifths rule, it's at 96%, and that 4% leeway, at least we've done that testing in advance and we have in our file. Who's going to be in a better position when we show up? The company that bought the sales position or did all this internal work? And that's no different when you're facing a wage and hour audit, a pay equity audit, an H-1B classification audit, you name it in our space, OFCCP, David, can talk to you. It, it's no different. And, but for some reason, that's, I don't see that happening yet. I'm encouraging that to happen. And that's something corporations can do right now, not just on the testing side, but also on the employee handbook side and the fair use of side. And I alluded to that before. Who are you having allowing having access to these algorithms? How are they being trained? And if you have a corporate policy internally, very much like you have a sexual harassment policy versus, oh, anyone can come in and play with it, again, who's in a better position? And that's all you can do right now. And there's nothing preventing companies from doing that yesterday. And that's what I've been encouraging in the meantime. But instead, everyone's distracted by this, oh, is there a new agency? What's New York going to do? What's the EU going to do? Oh, the algorithm's proprietary, so no government can get it. It's all nonsense. Can I just tag on to that? The Institute report that I mentioned by the 40 experts uh, has a nice list of best practices agreed to by that very diverse group. And, and I think that that would build right out on what Keith just outlined. Thank you. Well, please uh, join me in thanking our guests today. And thank you to all of you who are uh, watching at home. Society's Regulatory Transparency Project, thanks for tuning in to the Fourth Branch Podcast. To catch every new episode when it's released, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spreaker. For the latest from RTP, please visit our website at regproject.org. That's R-E-G project.org. This has been a FedSoc audio production. 